to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. Today, I have the great honor of speaking with two people I admire greatly, Dr. Cornell West and Dr. Robert George. Both of these individuals have an impressive pedigree. Dr. Cornell West, affectionately known to many as Brother West, is the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Chair at Union Theological Seminary. Dr. West teaches on the works of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, as well as courses in philosophy of religion, African-American critical thought, and a wide range of subjects, including, but by no means limited to, the classics, philosophy, politics, cultural theory, literature, and music. He has a passion to communicate to a vast variety of publics in order to keep alive the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., a legacy of telling the truth and bearing witness to love and justice. He has written 20 books and is best known for his classics, Race Matters and Democracy Matters, and for his memoir, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud. His most recent book, Black Prophetic Fire, offers an unflinching look at 19th and 20th century African-American leaders and their visionary legacies. Robert George is a professor of jurisprudence and the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University, a program founded under his leadership in 2000. He has served as chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, as well as a presidential appointee of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and the President's Council on Bioethics. In addition, Professor George has served as a U.S. member of UNESCO's World Commission on the Ethics of Scientific Knowledge and Technology. He was also a Judicial Fellow at the Supreme Court of the United States and is the author of several books. I wanted to have a conversation with both Cornell West and Robbie George because I think their friendship is a model for the United States, especially in this time of so much racial upheaval. And I thought their friendship in discussing issues of Black history during Black History Month is very important. Some people think that the celebration or observance of Black History Month is really only for Black people. But as you can tell when you listen to this conversation between these two great friends, is that it's for everybody. That history, that pursuit of truth, understanding greatness is for everybody, and it comes from everybody. You know what I mean? And as Catholics in particular, I think it's important for us to understand examining and celebrating and observing Black history as a part of the kind of reparations that we should be doing to repair the reputation and understanding of Black people as human persons and full contributors with all their gifts and talents to the whole of the human project. The myth-making of negativity around Black culture and Black people and low beliefs about them, I think, undergird some of the problems we have today in the areas of racial justice. And so to have this conversation and to see that Black history is American history, I think is really exemplified in the conversation that I have with both of them. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish, 
or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And that's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by clicking the follow button on your favorite podcast listening app and by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Dr. Cornell West and Dr. Robert George is up next. Wow, this is a stupendous day for the Gloria Purvis podcast. I am overjoyed to welcome Dr. Cornell West to the Gloria Purvis program and also Dr. Robbie George. Welcome again. Robbie, to the program. Just so excited to have both of you. I understand you all are traveling together right now. You're in Texas. What's going on there? Brother Cornell and I are down at Texas Christian University, TCU in uh, Fort Worth. And we're down here preaching a little gospel we like to preach, which is that the (laughs) mission of universities is truth-seeking. Absolutely, indeed, indeed. And it's directly connected to that rich Catholic tradition that produced both Robbie and Gloria and Tony Morris <laughs> and, and Mary Lou Williams, the greatest jazz pianist other than Art Tatum. All right. I, 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 I keep just, track of And look, the white ones too. The Asian true. Catholics. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful tradition. Amen. Thank you. And I'm so glad to have both of you also during Black History Month because I think your friendship... Uh, and the conversation we can have because you are friends will be encouraging to people listening and help people who are not African-American understand that Black History Month is a celebration for all of us. And as I think about the origins of Black History Month and the experience of Dr. Carter G. Woodson, known as the father of Black history, that when he created Negro History Week, it was to the with the understanding of we need to educate not just white people. We need to educate Black people themselves about the contributions of Black people to human history. Because when he was studying for his PhD, he saw in the academy, if you will, a sort of disbelief or ignorance that Black people actually did contribute anything to humanity. And as Catholics, we understand in the mode of justice that when people have been harmed, the reputation have been harmed, we have a duty to speak in a way that repairs the harm to the reputation. So if we think of Black people as a whole in the beginning of this country of being maligned as a people, the truth of their contributions, our contributions being withheld from the public as well as from other African-Americans, this celebration of Black History Month is a part of that truth-telling, that kind of repairing of the reputation of the Black community, so they don't suffer from what we would call derisio as Catholics, right? And so as I think about that, and I think about that now the theme for this year's Black History Month celebration is Black resistance and Black joy, with Black joy also being a form of resistance. I'm just wondering, Dr. West, if you might give a definition of Black resistance and a definition of Black joy as you see it. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think that at the center of Black history and Black History Month is wrestling with what it means to be human. And that is a particular people whose humanity may have been called into question. But when you raise it in that way, then you're going to talk about Black love, Black courage, Black resilience, Black resistance. 
Now, you also, if we're honest, we can talk about black thugs, black gangsters, black cowards, because anytime you talk about humanity, any of us, no matter what color, gender, sexual orientation, or national identity, you got the best and the worst. So we embrace the full-fledged humanity of a people whose humanity has been so viciously attacked by white supremacist ideas and ideologies and institutions. And we say, hmm, in the midst of all of this, here comes this revolutionary artist named Louis Armstrong, mm. who is overflowing with not just genius, but joy everywhere he goes. But Ozzy Davis says what? He's the saddest man I've ever seen. Mm. All of that. See how complicated and mixed and complex that he is, which is to say, it's us. <laughs> Look at Sister Gloria, that magnificent smile that just lights up the whole cosmos. We know you got some sadness somewhere. We know you got some sorrow. So, so Black history is a way of inviting all of us, no matter who we are, into these stories. We're going to spend a lot of time on the chocolate side of town because it's going to be black folk, but we are a slice of humanity that includes everybody. So let me ask Dr. George, as you hear us talk about black joy, black resistance, are there any figures that come to your mind? I know as we're talking about this, just for me, I was thinking about, gosh, there's just so many people. I was thinking about the first time I heard click language. When I was in Catholic elementary school, I had a teacher that really like to expose us to music and art and all these things. And the first time I heard Miriam Makeba sing Pata Pata, now this was long, long, long time after the song was popular, how it just excited me and how it exposed me to South African music, culture, even this language. Also thinking of Gil Scott Heron's Whitey on the Moon poem that was set to music, again, well ahead of my time. Just being exposed to so many different aspects, I guess, of what we would call a diaspora, I'm wondering if there are any figures for you, whether they be music, maybe they be different kinds of artists, maybe intellectuals, who for you comes to mind when we talk about Black resistance and Black joy? Well, as you know, Gloria, my own field is philosophy of law and constitutional law. I'm a, something of an amateur student of the Civil War and Reconstruction and the efforts of Black people to overcome the legacy of oppression, the legacy of slavery. So when I think of Black resistance, I can't help but first think of Frederick Douglass. And I don't get very far along with that before I'm now thinking about some Harriet Tubman type figures. Mm. As a matter of fact, as you know, Gloria, some years ago, I served as chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. And when I was being sworn in for that post at the Supreme Court of the United States by Chief Justice Roberts, I asked Cornell if he would do me the honor of holding the Bible for me. And he kindly agreed to come along to the ceremony and hold the Bible for me. But I wanted there to be a special Bible, a Bible associated with the noble cause of human rights. If I was going to be chairing this commission devoted to human rights, I, I wanted a Bible that had some history to it. And so being a great admirer of Harriet Tubman, I got in touch with the Harriet Tubman House in uh, Auburn, New York, and asked them if I could borrow Harriet Tubman's Bible. And uh, well, the lady on the other end of the phone said, well, um, we do have that Bible. And I detected just little hesitance in her voice. And I can understand, you know, sending a relic like that through Federal Express down in the mail to somebody you don't even know. So I thought I'd just interject very quickly. 
my dear friend, Brother Cornell West, is going to be holding the Bible for him. And she immediately said, oh, yes, we'd be very happy to send that Bible down. <laughs> and they did. And we had that magnificent Bible. And uh, we used that. Cornell held it for me, did me that honor. As and Robin's precious mother and father. My parents were there. Oh, it was just what a wonderful a Kairos moment. What a special occasion. But yeah, I can't help but think of figures like Harriet Tubman. Now, when you think about Black Joy, of course, the first name that came to my mind was the first one that came to Cornell's mind, Louis Armstrong. That great genius, unbelievable. As you know, I'm a musician as well, but every musician, no matter what instrument you play, no matter what style of music you play, you might be a classical musician, classical pianist or violinist. You might be, as I am, a bluegrass musician. I'm a serious, banjo player. Serious. He <laughs> plays a serious bluegrass. Bluegrass, you know, it's, uh, I grew up in the hills of West Virginia where banjos are issued to little boys at birth, so I came by it, honestly. <laughs> but no matter what your musical style is, if you're a musician, no matter what genre, no matter what your instrument is, when you hear Louis Armstrong playing that horn, you know you are in the presence of musical greatness. I mean, he was a genius. And of course, he brought that joy of music, his music. He loved it so much. And he loved people. Absolutely. And he brought that all over the world. This is, you know, right in the right in the middle of the whole Jim Crow oppression. Mm-hmm. Right. So many of us think of the late Armstrong when things had gotten relaxed a little bit. He lived through the worst parts. And he brought nothing but joy. There was a deep sadness inside him, no question about that. But there was also that joy. The other thing I would recommend to people, you want to learn something about Black Joy, read Skip Gates' personal memoir of growing up in West Virginia. It's entitled Colored People. And he tells the wonderful story of his wonderful Appalachian boyhood. Growing up Black in Appalachia in a tight community. And it's just a wonderful read. Absolutely. about his joy in growing up in that mil, milieu. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, that, that book should be classic. much more widely read. Skip and I are going to be doing a program at Princeton. We're just trying to work on finding the date together. We're, we're doing a program together at Princeton called Our Appalachian Boyhoods. We're just going to spend. Yeah, we're just going to spend an evening talking about that experience. Yeah, I grew up. I grew up not far from where he was. Uh, we weren't colored people, but we were foreign people. <laughs> my mother was Southern Italian. My my father was Syrian, and so we were in Appalachia. But like Skip, we weren't quite of uh, Appalachia. We weren't too much like our neighbors. You know, sometimes called the Jacksonians, those descendants of the Scots Irish. Similar. So nevertheless, we had a jo- I had a joyful upbringing. Two giants can come from this little section of West Virginia. Well, Skip's a giant. I don't know. No, all <laughs> he's a giant too. But I mean, that, that's already a good evidence that there's got to be a god somewhere <laughs> in that little small region. If you think of those wonderful songs from the 70s and 80s, like Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone, you'll think of another West Virginia. That's right. That's right. Brother Bill. Bill Withers. He was from West Virginia. Bill Withers. Straight out of West Virginia. He's a true Appalachian. That's the third one. Wow, I didn't know. Grandma's Hands. Yeah. Okay. I know those songs, but I just it never I never put West Virginia with Bill Withers. We all need yeah. someone to lean on. We all need somebody to lean on. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> we'll be right back.
on the subject of songs and sadness and uplift, I can't help but think of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is also known as the Black National Anthem. And let me just give a little bit of history for our listeners, because I know it's been a lot of dust up about it being sung and called the Black National Anthem, but I think people just contextually don't know the history of how it came to be known as the Black National Anthem and what that means. So the song was written in either 1899 or 1900 as a poem by James Weldon Johnson, who was the head of the NAACP, and it was performed for the first time in 1900 by a group of about 500 Black school children at a segregated school where James Weldon Johnson was the president. And it was performed to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday as well as the anniversary of emancipation. Now, the song spread because children were teaching other little children. And I was reading about this, uh, what James Weldon Johnson was talking about it, that he didn't help spread the song. It was school children being with other school children and teaching them the song. And so that's how the song spread in the community. Now, fast forward 19 years from then to the red summer of 1919, where Black people were catching hell and getting murdered widely across this United States. It was so bad that our own Holy Father at the time sent his emissary to ask the U.S. bishops to discuss this violence at their upcoming bishops' meeting. Unfortunately, they didn't do that, but it ought to let you know how seriously bad it was in the summer of 1919. And the NAACP during that summer dubbed Lift Every Voice and Sing the Black National Anthem. Now, if you think about what an anthem is, it's supposed to be a rousing song of uplift for a group, whether it's, you know, on a national level or by identity or whatever. So imagine Black people suffering in this way and then someone pointing to this Christian hymn and saying, this is our anthem. You, This is something we sing as a matter of uplift. And how ubiquitous the song is at any large gathering of Black people, whether it's at sorority meetings, fraternity meetings in the church, including the Catholic church, at schools, celebrations of Black History Month, you are going to hear the Black National Anthem, also known as Lift Every Voice, sung. And so when it was sung at the Super Bowl, that actual day was the 123rd anniversary of the first time the song was performed in public. And if people understand what an anthem is and understand the experience of Black Americans, in particular at that time of 1919, hopefully they could understand why it's called the Black National Anthem. And it is not in any way in competition with the Star Spangled Banner, which was later on after 1919 formally called the National Anthem for the United States. And it is not in any way exclusionary. I want to remind people that this is a part of American history and American experience, and these traditions that are in the Black community are fully American traditions as well. And so I'm hoping that people listening then won't receive the public performance of this anthem as in competition with the Star Spangled Banner or contrary to the Star Spangled Banner or in any way exclusionary. It's a song for all of us to be able to sing. And so I just wanted to mention that because I know there had been some people being upset and saying that it was racist and divisive to sing the song. But I think they say that because they weren't aware of the history and why it was called the Black National Anthem. But I'm sure both of you probably heard it performed many times. What are your thoughts on the anthem? How did it strike you, you know, maybe the first time or recently when you've heard it performed? Just curious. 
Well, I mean, good God, you know, I come out of the black freedom struggle and the black church tradition. And so I think I've heard the song a zillion times. I'm still trying to sing it in tune <laughs> and in key. He's a good singer. Don't, but, let, him, uh, don't, let, don't let him lie about it. But himself. it's a difficult song. Now, we, we, we got to remember Rosamond, his brother. They wrote it together, though, right? And the young folk just took it and ran. And the song is about as humanistic as you can get. God of our silent tears. If that doesn't hit you in your heart, mind, and soul, no matter what color of country you're from, nothing will. And that's very important because even the Star Spangled Banner has got some references to slaves. And we've heard that song a zillion times too. And, you know, rightly so, the nations have a right to choose their patriotic songs and so forth. No song is going to be pure. No song's going to be pristine, just like none of us as human beings. Even Catholics and Baptists are not pure and pristine or free of spot or wrinkle, right? But to be able to hear them together. Now, you notice at the Super Bowl, Babyface playing his guitar with his southpaw left hand, he sang America the Beautiful, too. That that was written by a socialist. You don't have to be left wing like that song. No, there's some beautiful things about America. And of course, the beauty is always tied to the tear and the ugly and the complex as well. So music in general is a way of dealing with our humanity, with all of the mess and miracle that we are. That's right. You're certainly not going to hear me as a Christian complaining about a, a song being sung that's actually a prayer, Ooh, praising Almighty God. Yes. Calling on his wisdom, good point. Calling on him to lead us to walk in his ways mm. in front of millions and millions and millions and millions of people on TV. I'm going to complain about that. I mean, Ooh, that's true. You're, you're going to hear the ACLU complaining about that before you hear me complaining <laughs> about that. And you know, let me just for our listeners who haven't, let me just read. A, I won't try to sing, but let me read a verse to you: God of our weary years. God of our silent tears, thou who hast brought us thus far on the way, thou who hast by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path we pray, lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we met thee, lest our hearts drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee, shadowed beneath thy hand, may we ever stand, true to our God, true to our native land. Now, I don't know about you listeners out there, but I'm a Christian and I'm a patriot and I hear true to our God and true to our native land and my heart begins to beat a little fast. I'm not going to complain about that song being sung. Uh-uh. No, that's true. That's very true. It's a beautiful and moving song and one that thanks to Servant of God, Thea Bowman is in a Catholic hymnal called Lead Me, Guide Me. So I've sung that song during Mass, during our Holy Mass as Catholics. I actually learned Lift Every Voice and Sing in a Catholic school, in my Catholic middle school in Charleston, South Carolina, same place I first time heard um, Miriam McCabe sing Pata Pata. And uh, just the joy that that brought me being exposed to the diaspora, if you will. You know, if we could go back, uh, Gloria, to a point Mm -hmm. Cornell was making earlier, I think it's very important. Let's say you're thinking about the Lift Every Voice hymn, the Black National Anthem, or the Anthem of Black People, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's a special sense in which it's the Anthem of Black People for historical reasons. 
but it's also a gift to everyone else. It's a gift to everyone else. It doesn't just belong to black people. Any more than Augustine only belongs to people of African descent or North African descent, or any more than Shakespeare only belongs to English people, or any more than Louis Armstrong only belongs to black people. These traditions and cultures and peoples give gifts to the entire world, to the entirety of, of humanity. And that's the way to think about it. Absolutely. Don't think about Armstrong as ours, not theirs, or Augustine or Aquinas or Shakespeare as ours, not theirs. I mean, honestly, would anybody want to say Shakespeare's not for blacks? Would anybody want to say Ellington, whose music I love, is not for whites? That's crazy. Exactly the, these great right. achievements are achievements are human achievements, and they're for all of humanity. They're for all of us. They come from particular cultures, yes. But the greatest achievements of humanity, the great teachers of humanity, all come from particular cultures. You know, I was thinking about different giants coming from different communities, cultures, traditions. You know, I'm thinking of Al-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz, known also as Malcolm X, and the kind of trajectory of his thought and in his life. I'm wondering if there's something about him that perhaps was misunderstood or that either of you would like to say that maybe you admired in him or found interesting about him that maybe people are unaware of. Because during Black History Month and I think of resistance and joy, I do think of him as well. And I'm wondering if either of you would like to comment on him. Yeah, we'll start off by acknowledging his Baptist father, Reverend Earl Little out of Omaha, Nebraska. And of course, Malcolm exposed to his vicious killing, and then his mother has a mental breakdown. So Malcolm comes out in his early years, very disoriented and deracinated, taken off into an orphanage and juvenile delinquency site and so forth. And yet he's still trying to grow. He gets caught in gangster activities, Malcolm Little. Honorable Elijah Muhammad comes in, loves him into some self-affirmation, some self trust and some self-regard, but it's still very narrow. He's saying white brothers and sisters are devils. Well, we know that's not true. But he's also saying we want to keep track of the devilish behavior of white brothers and sisters. That's a good idea. <laughs> we want to keep track of the devilish behavior of all of us. But Malcolm, it's going to take a while to move from loving black people to loving everybody. You know, he's not a Martin Luther King kind of brother early on. At the end of his life, he moves in that direction. He says, I'm for truth, no matter who says it. That's after he goes to Mecca. He goes to Mecca, absolutely. After he's gone beyond Elijah Muhammad in terms of his deeply humanistic orientation within the Islamic tradition. But he said, I'm for truth, no matter what. I'm for justice, no matter what. I'm a human being. I'm a Muslim. I'm a free black man. And there's a whole lot there. Dead at 39. You can imagine where he would have been if he lived as, as long as Augustine. I would just add, Gloria, this. I, I want to break some news to both my conservative friends and to my liberal friends or friends on the left. It seems to be ignored by both sides. Malcolm X was a deeply, deeply culturally conservative man. Okay. <laughs> if the people on the left would attend to that, they might like him a little less. And if the conservatives would attend to that, I think they'd like him a heck of a lot more. There's a kind of caricature image of Malcolm X floating around out there 
on both the right and the left, and they're both wrong. That character isn't the reality of a complex, no doubt, complex man, deeply religious. He becomes an Orthodox Muslim. He gets way past this white people are devil stuff that he gets out of Nation of Islam. He becomes an Orthodox Muslim and deeply, deeply culturally conservative. He understands the importance of family. He understands the importance of institutions. He understands the importance of of moral norms. He's not one of these do your own thing. If it feels good, if it feels good, do it type. That's not, that's on Malcolm X. Uh Uh-uh. Stern, strict standards of morality. Absolutely. Oh, that's true. And I think that was part of his falling away from the Nation of Islam is when he saw the abuses of Elijah Muhammad and called them out. The hypocrisy. The hypocrisy. And then I think the first time he did the Hajj, he encountered Muslims of all races. And that really opened his mind to some things as well. And so I don't think that's often well known about Malcolm X. So thank you both for adding to that picture of him. No, I think it's so very important. You know, these days people want to talk about the unity of groups, the unity of Black folk, unity of white folk, unity of Christian, unity of Muslims. If Malcolm X were alive today, he would have a massive condemnation of Muslims killing Muslims in Iran. And that means what? There's got to be a moral and a spiritual standard that's bigger than the tribe or the group, whoever the group is. Christians killing Christians. Ireland, France, the 1500s with the war of religions. And so so human beings been killing human beings for a long time in the name of different things. But the moral and spiritual standards that allow us to look at it through different lens. That's very important. And that's something that Malcolm did exemplify, especially later in his life after Mecca. Absolutely right. Professor West, what might the themes of Black resistance and Black joy offer us today? How might we think about that today, especially given the summer of 2020, these murders of Maude Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and as of late, Tyree Nichols, How can Black joy and resistance inform us today, help us deal with the now, if you will? Well, one is we've got to be vigilant about loving others. We've got to be vigilant about engaging in a courageous witness of that love. You have to be vigilant in recognizing that you're going to fall on your face and be wrong sometimes, but you can bounce back. And in the end, we have to be courageous in trying to connect ourselves to the best of the traditions that have been bequeathed to us. T.S. Eliot is right about the sense of the past operating in the present that can empower us and enable us to be more courageous, to be more loving, and to be also more humble. Thank you. Let me just fangirl before we're done with this conversation. Somebody sent me a video of you, Professor West, teaching a class, I think it was at either Brown or Dartmouth. I don't remember. But I thought I would go into debt to take that class. (laughs) (laughs) Happily go into debt to take that class. I would pay you for you to bring your brilliance and your magnificence into my classroom. I can tell you that right now. Now, when me and Brother Robbie get a chance to teach together. Hey, I'm there. (laughs) Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Oh, should we put John Henry Newman here and Martin Luther King here and see this dialectical relationship? We say, 
Sister Gloria, come on in. Come on in, <laughs> Sister Gloria. I would sit at both of your knees and just listen like a babe at her mom's <laughs> breast. <laughs> you would have a lot to say. You would have so much to say. Gloria, you got to come and join us. I'm there. I'm just going to tell my husband, sell the house. Let's get rid of that mortgage so we can pay that debt for me to go back to school. <laughs> but, woo, that would be. And, you know, it, I, I love to hear that, especially when you first told us that what you're doing is truth-seeking, helping people understand how to be truth-seekers. And I see that so much as a part of what we need to be able to understand and explore history and thought together and not be afraid of engaging with the best of ideas and critiquing you know, and being okay with that, right? And being able to have a friendship and having these kinds of discussions, not with the aim to minimize the other, but with the aim to together seek what's true, what is beautiful, what is best, and just have those discussions. And I think that is really just in alignment with the spirit of Black History Month, of being able to seek and explore and come to understand different figures in history, whether they're from our cultural arena or not, but that they add something to the richness of humanity and human thought and human art and experience. And I just want to thank you both so much for joining me on the Gloria Purvis podcast and blessing my listeners with your presence and your intellect and your friendship. Thank you. Mm, Thank you, Gloria. We are so blessed blessed to be brothers, but what you just said is what you enact every show. Okay, I'm going to start crying. <laughs> we just telling the truth. We try to do it. We try to be truth tellers. <laughs> what we do, we're in the truth business. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gloria. God bless you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. Oh, and by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media, is produced by Maggie Van Dorn, and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.